Hello there, folks, and thank you for listening to the show. It's just me this time, presenting to you episode 86 of Stranger Than Podcast, where I will be talking about African cryptids and myths. It'll be three cryptids and really just one creation myth from one tribe in Africa. Today, there are no species of bear in Africa. In the 1870s, the last atlas bear, a subspecies of brown bear, was killed. The atlas bear had been hunted since the Roman times at least, as the Romans used them for sport, either to hunt or as competitors in gladiatorial games. That being said, there are stories of a creature known as the Nandi bear that prowls the night around villages in eastern Africa, viciously attacking humans and animals. This nocturnal creature is said to be the size of a lion. A male lion can top out at 8.2 feet long, 12.8 meters, not counting the tail, and around 420 pounds, 190 kilograms. Females are about two-thirds the weight and length of the males. The Nandi bear walks with the regular shuffle of a bear, but resembles a hyena in the way that its back slopes from the shoulders to the hind legs. Though eyewitnesses had thought it to be a lion from a distance, as it got closer they could clearly see a bear snout and could identify its thick, dark fur, thought to be a very dark red or brown. Villagers in the area where these creatures are thought to frequent claim to have killed them with fire, while tourists have reported shooting at them but haven't recovered any bodies. The description of the Nandi bear is quite similar to that of the Atlas bear. However, atlas bears were mainly herbivores that would pretty much only go for meat out of desperation, like the desperation of being starved by Romans to fight other things. It would make them appear more vicious, so that the people going to watch the gladiatorial games would think it was cooler. The Nandi bear seems to be a stone-cold killer. Additionally, bears are usually only active during the day, unless forced to be otherwise. Bears living near large populations of humans may become nocturnal to do bear stuff away from the eyes of people. Also, the atlas bear was a resident of northern Africa around Morocco, whereas reports of Nandi bear come exclusively from the east coast of Africa. Some believe that perhaps this is not a bear at all. Perhaps it's a descendant of some kind of megafauna. Perhaps it's a modern-day megafauna. Some say that it could possibly be a prehistoric animal that has remained hidden for all this time, which I suppose is possible. Africa is a pretty big place, and it's still pretty wild in some places. Archaeologists have found evidence of what appears to be a sort of short-snouted hyena that is around the size of a lion. The largest species of hyena today is about 5.5 feet long and can weigh up to 140 pounds. Hyenas are fascinating animals. Females and males are nearly indistinguishable from one another on the outside. Uh, The clitoris is sometimes larger than the penis. If you'd like to know more about this amazing animal, take a listen to the podcast called Species. It's a safe-for-work and safe-for-children podcast that talks about, you guessed it, animals. Another creature that people land on for a nandy bear is called a chalicothere which is quite unlikely, as it was an herbivore that died out in the Paleolithic, which began 2.6 million years ago and ended about 10,000 BCE. These critters are the ancestors of horses, and they had claws instead of hooves, probably 
to dig stuff up as they were herbivores, dig up roots and whatnot. If the creature exists, it's more likely that it's some sort of a large baboon. Baboons can be up to about four feet tall and weigh up to 80 pounds. According to the Nandi tribe in Kenya, the tribe the animal is named after, the creature is a primate. There's also fossil evidence of giant baboons. Even though modern baboons are pack hunters and not nocturnal, it's not a stretch that a larger relative could well be nocturnal solo hunters. It's also not a stretch that an animal like this could go unnoticed by modern science. The Beely apes were discovered in 2004. They seem to be some kind of chimp-gorilla hybrid, as they look like bigger than normal chimps and they nest like a gorilla's on the ground. They also hunt and eat lions, so that's, you know, pretty badass. The next couple cryptids I'm going to talk about are possible throwbacks to dinosaur times. A petrosaur was the first vertebrate to evolve flight. They died out 66 million years ago and could be quite large. At the smallest, they had a wingspan of 10 inches, 25 centimeters, but the largest had wingspans of up to 36 feet, 11 meters, and stood the height of a modern-day giraffe making it the largest critter to fly on this planet ever. Despite the fact that they lived during the time of dinosaurs, this was, in fact, a warm-blooded animal. It had a long beak filled with teeth and primitive feathers, kind of leathery in appearance. In some species, the males had large crests on their head. In Zambia, there have been reports of something that bears a terrifying resemblance to this creature, which they call Kongamato. In 1932, Frank H. Welland went on a search for Kongamatu in the swamps of western Zambia. When he arrived in the area, the natives gave him a description of the beast and some accounts of encounters with it. It was reddish in color, with kind of leathery skin instead of feathers, and a long beak filled with sharp teeth. It had a wingspan of between 3 and 7 feet, 1 to 2 meters. The name Kongamato means overwhelmer of boats and it's called this because they have been known to attack small boats, attacking and killing those inside, possibly for food. People in the area were absolutely terrified of this creature. They believed that to even see it meant death. Welland showed the locals drawings of petrosaurs. Each person he showed it to immediately recognized it as a Kongamato. Tanzania is 560 miles, 900 kilometers, away from Zambia and is the location of excavations of fossilized remains of petrosaurs. It's possible that some people from Zambia worked at the excavation site and brought the stories back with them. This, however, doesn't really explain the knowledge of what the animal would have looked like as more than just fossilized bones. You wouldn't be able to tell from just a fossil much of anything as far as to how the critter looked on the outside. Not without, maybe like, specialized knowledge anyway. It also doesn't really explain why the stories would pop up so far away and not at the dig site itself. In 1933, Ivan Sanderson was exploring present-day Cameroon, then known as the British Cameroons. He was a zoologist and a writer, and was leading an expedition in the area for the British Museum. One day, he was hunting by a rapid-flowing river, and he shot a fruit bat. It fell into the river, and so he went after it. I'm not sure if he was just going to eat it, or if he wanted it as a trophy, or to examine it, but 
Regardless, while wading in the river, he slipped. Once he regained his footing, he heard a warning from his colleague, and he looked up. I mean, it was at night, and so he looked up, and he saw this huge black shape descending on him. He dove back into the river and made his way to the shore, where he and his companion laid prone on the ground, you know, covering their vital bits, as this large creature dove at them over and over again, just flying up and then dive-bombing them and trying to get them and then rinsing and repeating. The story goes that as they lay there, the only thing they could hear was the loud beating of huge wings, and then the creature flew off into the night. They returned to the group of locals accompanying them and asked them if they knew what that creature may have been. The locals did not answer them, and they just got the fuck out of Dodge post-haste. People to this day report seeing large, bat-like birds eating carrion and flying around in the areas previously mentioned, as well as around Mount Kilimanjaro and other remote areas. Natives in these off-the-grid areas, when shown pictures of petrosaurs, always recognize them as photos of Kongamato. Who knows if their knowledge of this critter, you know, from pictures today has been marred just by, you know, getting shown pictures all the time of this damn thing. But I find it especially compelling that back when Westerners first went to go check this out, the natives recognized the pictures as the cryptid. Before the trip into the British Cameroons, Ivan Sanderson was in a different part of Africa looking into a different elusive animal. He had found tracks that looked like hippo tracks and saw a creature that he thought could resemble a hippo, a large hippo, but he caught only the briefest glimpse as it was sliding under the surface of the water. He brought this encounter up to the locals who knew exactly what he had seen, and they called it Mabulu Mbembe. This creature is said to be about the size of an elephant, but with a long neck and a long tail. The tracks left look almost identical to that of the hippo, but with three small claws. Also, there's no hippos in this particular area. In the Republic of Congo's Likuwala region, there's a pygmy tribe who also have stories of an animal matching this description, which they call Mokele Mbembe. Mokele Mbembe has several meanings depending upon who is saying the word. It either means rainbow, one that stops the flow of rivers, or monstrous animal. Their description of the animal adds reddish-brown or gray skin and a neck that is about 10 feet 3 meters long. A thing of note is that the description they gave of the footprints matched exactly those that Sanderson had found. The description of this animal seems to match that of a brontosaurus, or some similar creature called sauropods. These animals were dinosaurs, and as far as we know have been dead for millions of years. An explorer from America, James Powell, showed pictures of sauropods to the natives who immediately recognized it as Mokele Mbembe. In 1959, near Lake Tele, in this same region, natives reported that a creature matching the description of Mokele Mbembe had been killed, but apparently no evidence was retained to prove that the event actually happened. Africa is a big place, with many places that a critter could go completely unnoticed by those not living so close to the land like the natives in the area do. The chance of you seeing one of these things just on a week's trip is pretty slim, but if you live there all the time, you're, you're going to come across these sightings more frequently. I believe it possible for even a large animal to remain hidden if it's not inclined to show itself. Also, if these animals lived in a swamp, it may be quite difficult to find a corpse, and even more difficult to find bones. So that's our three cryptids for the episode. Pretty interesting things. 
Now we're going to talk about a creation myth by the Yoruba people. The Yoruba are a people that inhabit Nigeria, Benin, Togo, and Ghana. They make up about a fifth of the population of Nigeria, making them one of the larger ethnic groups in Africa. Today, their population is around 60 million, and they have inhabited this general area of West Africa for at least a couple thousand years. Here is their story of creation. Before the universe as we know it, there is nothing but sky and below water and marshland devoid of life. Olorun was the supreme being of the sky and was the wisest god. Olukun was the most powerful goddess and ruled the waters and the marshlands. These two beings were completely fine with this arrangement. Olorun hardly noticed the area below, and Olukun was content with what she had. Another god, Obatala, was young and brash, and saw the lifeless sea beneath the sky as pitiful, barren, and murky. It was his belief that a few mountains here, maybe a continent or two with some forest there, would really tie the whole place together. Olorun always liked Obatala and was more than happy to listen to his plan about giving the ocean below a makeover. Maybe he was always happy to listen to anybody, maybe it was just because Obatala was his favorite. I don't know. Anyway, Olorun thought his idea was a good one. Having hills and valleys and plants and animals would be way more interesting than an eternity of murky oceans and marshlands. But who would do it? Obatala, of course, said that he'd do all the work if only he had the blessing of the wise god. For some reason, Olorun's hands were tied so he couldn't directly help, but his son, Orunmila, could. Olorun sent Obatala to see Orunmila for guidance. Orunmila was the eldest son of Olorun and was able to see the future and understood the secrets of existence. The means he used to tell the future was a tray and palm nuts. He'd shake the nuts around on the tray and then fling them into the air. Something in the way they flew or landed would mean something. The reading he did for Obatala revealed what would be needed to execute the plan to make land. He was going to need a gold chain long enough to reach the sky to the water below. He would also need a snail shell full of sand, a black cat, a white hen, and a palm nut. Obatala went to the goldsmith and told him what he needed. The goldsmith was perfectly willing and able to make this chain, no problem. But Obatala had to provide him with all of the gold. The young god went around and hit up all of his friends and family got their gold, and he ended up with quite a bit. They gave him all manner of things, bracelets and crowns and, you know, just whatever. After this whole crowdfunding campaign, he brought all the gold back to the goldsmith, but it still wasn't quite enough. But at this point, there wasn't even an ounce of gold left in the sky, so he told the goldsmith just to make the chain as long as he could. The goldsmith went to work immediately on the chain, and before too long completed it. They hooked one end to the edge of the sky, and let the other end drop towards the sea. Arunmila showed up with a bag filled with all the fixins to make land and handed it to Obatala, who began his descent into the twilight land of water below. Though this chain was pretty long, as mentioned before, it was not long enough. Though when Obatala was at its end, he could feel the spray from the ocean, he dared not jump. From above, he heard the voice of Arunmila, instructing him to dump the sand out of the snail shell and into the water below. 
and upon completing that to release the white hen. The hen landed far below, on top of the released sand, and began scratching and pecking, causing the sand to spread in all directions. As each grain of sand struck ocean, it became land. Valleys and mountains were made depending upon the amount of sand spread in the area. With land now beneath, Obatala let go of the chain. He was so fond of the first place he landed, he named it Eif. Here, he planted the palm tree, which immediately grew to full height, and other trees soon spreaded around it. There is still a city called Eif today in southwestern Nigeria. Obatala cut down some of these trees and made himself a house, which he thatched with palm leaves. And here he just kind of chilled out, with no one else around except his black cat. I'd say that isn't bad company. Obatala was pretty happy with his new life on this land and sort of forgot to check back in with the boss, who, as it turns out, was getting impatient for an update. He was so impatient, in fact, that he sent a chameleon by the name of Egamo to climb his ass down the chain and find out what the hell was going on. It was pretty easy to find Obatala's house because it was the only house. Agamo knocked on his door and told him that Alderaan needed to know if land had been made in the sea. Obatala confirmed that yes, this hard stuff that Agamo was standing on was land and all the green stuff coming out of the ground was plants. So yeah, he'd succeeded. He also told the chameleon that it was a nice place, but he missed seeing the sun. Egamo relayed this information back to Olorun, who decided to make Obatala a gift, and fashioned for him a bright golden orb. He tossed it into the sky to provide light and warmth to the budding land below. For a time this kept Obatala content, but soon enough he wanted companionship. He played around with the soil around him while trying to come up with what he should make his creations look like, when he noticed that this wasn't so much soil as clay. He began sculpting things that looked like him out of this clay. Each time he would finish one, he would lay it out in the sun to dry. He was kind of new to sun and soon became quite hot and thirsty from all the work he had been doing sculpting each of these clay figures. Palm wine would really hit the spot, so he went and made some. Apparently it was much easier for him to make wine than it is me, because all he did was squeeze palm juice into a container and leave it in the sun for a bit until it fermented into wine, which he drank until he was wasted. Then, drunk as shit, he began making clay figures again. But these ones weren't perfect. Some didn't have all their limbs or had them misshapen. Some had crooked backs or crooked limbs. Finally, he drunkenly called to the sky for Oleron to breathe life into these clay figures that he called human beings. Oleron did just that and watched as these little humans got up and began building houses around Obatala's house. This is the first Yoruba village. Obatala was still drunk at this point and happy as a toddler at his new creations, ecstatic that these human beings were so perfect and awesome. As he sobered up, however, he began to see the flaws he had given the ones he made while drunk. He saw them struggle and he felt pretty shitty and gave an oath never to drink again. He also became the protector of humans with disabilities and would take the time to help any of those he came across. As the city grew, he became more and more proud of his creations and he presented each man with a copper bush knife and a wooden hoe. He also taught them how to cultivate the land so they would have an excess of food supply. After a time of being among his creations and helping them to become self-sufficient, Obatala decided that he had nothing more to teach the humans. He told them he'd visit when he could and ascended the golden chain back to the sky. The other gods really loved hearing his stories about the humans below and would listen with interest whenever he talked about them. 
they loved the story so much that they wanted to go visit. As the group prepared to leave, Oleron told them that they all needed to remember that they, as higher beings, had a responsibility to treat these humans with respect and caring. They would each be filling a special role and should take that role seriously and whenever possible should help the humans should they require it. So down had a bunch of gods who began to divide the land up below between them all. As gods do, I suppose. Remember the most powerful goddess who ruled the sea and marshlands, Olakon? Well, she got pissed off because no one asked her if any of this was cool. Apparently she didn't take too much offense to the new land and the humans on it, but the gods coming down to her territory and having the audacity to think they could just set up shop without asking her? That's bullshit. In order to satisfy her honor, she called upon the waves to wipe this land off the surface of the ocean and all the inhabitants with it. So, up, up, up goes the water, washing out crops and sending thousands to their deaths in the sea. Some of the humans were able to make it to high places where the water didn't reach and called to Abutala to help them. Of course, his house was far above the mountains and he could not hear their pleas. The people turned to a different god called Ishu and asked him to go to the sky and let the others know that the flood would destroy everything. Ishu said he would, but the people were going to have to prove that they revered the gods. They had to offer a sacrifice, and if they prayed hard enough, they would be saved. After they did this, Ishu demanded that if he was going to deliver the message, he deserved a reward. The people, desperate, offered him sacrifice after sacrifice until he was appeased, and only then did he climb the chain to the sky. Ishu told Obatala what had befallen his people, and Obatala was concerned. He couldn't contend with Olokan. He was, she was far too powerful. He went to Orunmila and asked his advice. Orunmila told Obatala just to chill out in the sky. He'd take care of everything. Orunmila went down and, using his powers, was able to get the waves under control so the land dried up and things were back to how it was pre-flood. For the most part, anyway. The humans saw Orunmila as their savior and wished for him to remain as their protector. He told them he had no desire to hang out down there, but did teach them how to see the future and showed them how to bend the natural forces to their use. I imagine that means he showed them irrigation, fire-making, and things of that nature. Obviously, this wasn't the end of things. Olakon had lost this round, but now she was even more pissed. She wanted to humiliate Olorun because he was the jackass that let Obatala do all this bullshit to begin with. Olakon hatched a plot. In addition to being the most powerful goddess, she was also an expert weaver. So, she challenged Olorun to a weaving contest. Even though Olorun knew Olokan was a better weaver than him, he couldn't let her think that she was superior to him in anything. So, he sat and thought. And finally, an idea came to him. He sent the chameleon Egamo down to Olokan under the pretense that he was just checking on the quality of her cloth, so he could report back to Oleron how good it was. She was more than happy to oblige the little lizard, as she knew she was an expert weaver and liked to show off her skills. So, out she comes in a skirt that she made, and Agamo changes his color to match the skirt exactly. She goes back to bring out another one, even more vibrant than the last, and Agamo does the same thing. So a few more times she does this, and each time the little chameleon is able to match the color perfectly. This makes her think to herself that if this mere messenger can match the colors of her cloth, 
then his master must be far superior. She gave Egamo a message. She sent her greetings to the ruler of the sky and acknowledged his superiority in all things. Oleron accepted this, and the two gods once more became friends. And then everything was all copacetic between the sky and the earth at this point. Some interesting correlations between uh, other flood myths and, and this particular one. Uh, we said earlier that flood myths were something that was fairly common throughout the world, and I guess this is just another example of that. I would like to thank you all very much for listening. I know this is another kind of short one, but we should be back to normal next month. Joanna is just moving, and so it makes it complicated to get together and record. If you would like to check out our social medias, any place that we are, you'll find us at Stranger Than or Stranger Than Podcast. You can send us an email, strangerthanpodcast at gmail.com. Join our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangerthanpodcast. You get the episodes ad-free, plus you get an additional bonus episode each month. So again, thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you next time.